So thank you for the gift of this sabbatical. This sabbatical is, a, is an interesting experience. It's kind of a, a journey through Psalm 139. Uh, Psalm 139 begins with, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then it ends with, O Lord, search me. Search me and know my thoughts and know my heart and, and see what's inside me. It's that kind of a journey. It's a journey that steps into, Lord, I know that you know me, but, but let's, let's stir up the mud. Let's stir up the pot and, and search me and bring these things to light. And as you can well imagine, that experience is often profound, but also with that often quite painful. It's a good mix of the profound and the painful. Now, to help me through this, I, I followed the, the direction of our elders, Brian and Tony, who had been, uh, as we prepared for the sabbatical, suggesting that maybe I get some, some kind of coaching, whether in preaching or leadership, pastoring or, or something. And through a, a series of, of what felt like divine moments, I was led to a sabbatical coach, a guy who coaches pastors in sabbaticals. And I met with him uh, every three weeks or so, and he would give me assignments. He would say, here, I want you to, to work on this aspect of your relationship with the Lord. I want you to think about this aspect of your relationship with the Lord. And then he would talk to me you know, about how, how am I doing with that that we talked about last week and how is the sabbatical going. And so I would talk with him through these moments of profoundness, these, these moments of pain. And with the space and with the time of the sabbatical, uh, Certain things became clearer. You know, I, I, I don't have a lot of sort of like new things. Like I don't know who the, you know, what the mark of the beast is or who the, you know, the man of sin is. I don't know any special new great things. What, I, what happened was I was returned to. I was returned to and I was sort of uh, gripped by the back of the neck and had my nose held in uh, some very essential truths. The essential question, really. And the essential question is the question of faith. If you've got a bulletin, all of these notes are in that bulletin. Um, if you want to go get a bulletin, you can go now and get one and we'll wait for you. We won't wait for you, but, <laughs> but you can go get one. And The question of faith, that is the, that is the question. Now, we don't necessarily want to have questions in our faith, do we? We'd rather have answers. Everybody wants to have an answer. Everybody wants to have answers for faith. What's your answer for faith? But sometimes, really all, all the time, questions are just as important as answers. Questions are just as important as answers. We need to, time, from time to time, inspect important things. Hey, is that black mold growing in there? Hey, is that, a, is that crack getting longer? Is there some sort of gap opening up there? I need to pay attention to these things. I'm trying to sell my uh, big blue truck that the Lord gave me about a year ago because we need to free up space in our driveway and we need to free up a little capital for my, uh, my new driver's vehicle. Uh, and so I'm trying to sell it online and somebody wanted uh, more pictures. And so I'm walking around the truck taking what I hope are you know, good pictures of this vehicle. And, and I get around to the back right side and, and I, I think, is that where the tailpipe's always supposed to be? And I'm looking at it for a second, I'm like, oh, I don't think that's where the tailpipe's supposed to be. So I reach down and grab it, and sure enough, the whole thing's wobbling, you know, in front of the fat part, it like rusted through, and so I had to get that fixed. And... But it's like, 
You need to sometimes, when you want to just present everything as being great, you need to slow down and you need to look at things and you need to ask some questions. Is this going to pass inspection? Is this going to work? And the most important question we can ask is the question of faith. The most important question. I mean, think all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible, right? That the Abraham, the, the founder of the faith, right? The, the, the guy who God called to, to launch the people of Israel and relaunch the new creation work that God was doing of, of redemption in the world. And he calls Abraham, and he doesn't call Abraham because Abraham's right intelligent or good looking or, or super righteous. In fact, what, what the Bible says is that God looked at Abraham and he counted his faith as righteousness. That is, it wasn't because Abraham was so much more well-behaved than everybody or such a good son or such a good husband or, or any of the things that we tend to look at and say, well, that's a good person. In the eyes of God, God looked at Abraham and he said, oh, he's doing it right because he trusts in me. He trusts in me and trusts in my word. At the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. You know this verse because Paul quotes it in Romans and Galatians, and the author of Hebrews quotes it as well. The righteous, my righteous one, the Lord says, shall live by faith. Which again is the Lord saying that in my eyes, righteousness is not what you're doing right. It's whether you're putting your faith and trust in me and my word. Whether you're following me, if you're doing that in the eyes of God, you're doing it right. Now think about this on the far side of the Bible. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world. We got the right legislation passed. Right? Well, the church finally stepped up and took action in the community. Well, we just were, we got to be more pious, so we got to be more pure. And that's the victory that will overcome the world. But what does John say? He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Trusting in Jesus, trusting in what he has done for us, that is the victory here. So this is an extremely important, faith is the most important issue. It is central. It is the central question of our lives. Because why? Because everything is about Jesus. And faith is just a sort of uh, hyperlink to a fuller understanding, which is our relationship with him. Are we following him? Are we straying from him? What is the nature of our relationship with the one about whom all things are? That's the question of faith. There's no bigger question in the universe or in our lives. This is the central question of all things. Now, on my sabbatical, the, the phrasing of the question of faith the way that it sort of populated my mind and confronted me throughout these last three months was in the language of Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. You remember uh, three months ago, we took three or four weeks to study this kind of word by word. In returning and in rest, you shall be saved. God is saying to the people of Judah, he's not saying in returning and rest, you'll be saved from your sins. He's saying, I'm going to save you from the, the things that you're in. And in quietness and trust shall be your strength. I'll give you strength to go through these things. I'll give you strength to endure and to flourish despite them. And so we talked about these. This is a very important verse for me. It's almost like a mantra prayer that, that the Lord uses to guide me over the last several years. And, and I shared this with you before I went on sabbatical. But what we didn't talk about, which is kind of what we're talking about this morning, is the last phrase in that verse. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were not willing. 
but you were not willing. And so the question I had to ask myself, the question of faith is, am I willing? Am I willing to trust the Lord? To stop what I'm doing and return to Him? To rest in what He has done and what He is doing, what He has promised to do, to rest in that, to be quiet, to stop telling Him what to do, to stop just planning out my own life, but to listen to Him, to trust in Him. Am I willing to do that again? Because that's the question of Isaiah 30, 15. To people who have theoretically already put their faith in the Lord, who have already trusted Him at different points, are you willing to do it again? And that is always a new and freshly painful question, which is the gift that I want to give you this morning. Of luxuriating in that difficulty for a few minutes together. 1 Kings 19. You read the whole thing, Mike. I can't believe. Why, why did you do that to us? <laughs> Just kidding. 1 Kings 19 is the story of Elijah wrestling with the question of faith. Uh, my sabbatical coach, among the many gifts that he gave me, he recommended a book to me at the beginning of the sabbatical. Now, I kind of pride myself on knowing books and authors, and, and you know, and I, he handed me the book, and I'd never heard of it before, and I could smell a stinker from a mile away, but it was an extraordinarily helpful book called Invitation to Solitude and Silence by Ruth Haley Barton, and it, it's, each chapter is just a, a meditation through 1 Kings 19, thinking about Elijah's experience and, and his struggles with the question of faith. So we're going, to talk a, we're going to talk a little bit about 1 Kings 19 this morning, and we're going to talk about 1 Kings 19 in each of the next two Sundays. Uh, next week we're going to talk uh, more about things that I've learned from my sabbatical and, and about the question of faith, about why we should trust and follow the Lord. And then the third week out, we're going to talk about some very specific and concrete sort of realizations that... Uh, I feel like the Lord gave me over my sabbatical for what uh, trusting the Lord actually is going to mean in very practical ways. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> there are things that will become part of my life, and I'm hopeful that I can share with you and that you will benefit from that as well. But before we get into 1 Kings 19, I want to just uh, I want to begin in 1 Kings 18 and set up a little bit of the context of 1 Kings 19. Right? Context is always super important for understanding passages of Scripture. So let's start with just really, uh, first of all, who is Elijah? I mean, some of you know who Elijah is, some of you don't. He's not necessarily in the top three biblical characters that you automatically think of as being really great Old Testament patriarch people. Right? We think of Adam, we think of Abraham, we think of Moses, maybe then it kind of tapers off a little bit. You're like, maybe Joshua, maybe Isaiah, because we just studied Isaiah in church not long ago. You start thinking, eh, maybe these other guys. And where do you put Elijah? But, I want, but think about this. When Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, when, uh, when he reveals his divine glory to Peter, James, and John up there, who's with them? It's Moses... Of course, Moses and Elijah. And why? Because those are the two characters from the Old Testament who went up on the mount and met with God. And so they're there on the Mount of Transfiguration to kind of uh, give validity to the glory that they see from Jesus. So Elijah is a very significant character, and it's very significant that he's so significant because what we're going to see is that even he wrestles with faith. 
I don't know, I was thinking about this this morning in the wee hours. Uh, what is it like to come back from sabbatical as a congregation and hear your pastor saying, let's talk about the question of faith. You're a little bit like, eh? let's talk about the answers of faith. Let's talk about strong faith. But even Elijah, even Elijah is wrestling with the question of faith. And I think it's astonishing. If you look at chapter 18, I just noticed this this morning again, the in chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah, we're going to talk about this scene in just a minute, but he comes before all the people and he says, how long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. So Elijah has a very clear understanding on who God is and that he should be followed. And yet even he is going to be wrestling with the question of faith in just a minute in his story. Now, moving towards the closer context of 1 Kings 19, I want you to understand something very clearly about the people of Israel at this point. Israel was a 12-tribe nation for a short season, and then there was a break, a, a secession of the northern 10 tribes. They took the name Israel, and the bottom two took the name Judah. And so those 10 tribes, they basically, they got rid of the worship of Yahweh. They got rid of the worship of the God of their fathers. Elijah is the only prophet operating in that entire kingdom of Israel. He's the only prophet of God. Baal's got over 400 who were invited to the Mount Carmel showdown. Asherah's got 450. There's tons of prophets for all the idols, but only one prophet for the true God. As a consequence of this, I want you to understand what, what's going on here. God told Elijah to predict or to, to judge Israel with a famine. And so Elijah said, Hey, everybody, there's not going to be any rain. You should repent and serve God. And then God took Elijah and hit him because everybody's going to be super mad at him for, for saying that. And then he's hiding, and King Ahab sends out all of the Israelite army to find him. Find him and kill him. Because maybe that will end the famine, and if not, it'll just feel good. Let's find him and kill him. So that's where Elijah is. Then the Lord says to him, go make yourself known, and we're going to do a thing. So he makes himself known through Obadiah, of all people. If you haven't read 1 Kings 18 and 19 in a while, please read it this week before next Sunday. He reveals himself to Obadiah. Obadiah sets up a meeting between Elijah and Ahab, and they, they yell at each other a little bit, and then Elijah says, I'll meet you tomorrow on Mount Carmel. Bring everybody you want to bring. So they go up to Mount Carmel. And they're, they're there on this, this holy mountain, and there's over 800 prophets of, of idols, prophets of Baal, and there's Elijah. And Elijah says, here's the deal, here's the contest. We're both going to set up altars, we're both going to lay a sacrifice on the altar, and then we're going to pray, and whichever God sends fire down from heaven, that's the true God, okay? And everybody's, you know, laughing, jeering, okay, yeah, this sounds good. So the prophets of Baal, right, they set up a, a really nice altar. I mean, they've got a lot of people working on this thing. They've got people that know how to use tools on stone. And so the, right away, they boom, they got a great altar. They put their sacrifice on there. And then they spend the entire day dancing around, singing songs, cutting themselves, whatever they can do to get Baal to give them attention. Finally, Elijah's like, enough. I think enough. He rolls up 12 stones together, lays his sacrifice on it, then proceeds to pour over 100 gallons of water on his sacrifice. 
And then he says this, if you've got your Bibles open, look with me at 1 Kings 18, 36. First Kings 18.36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So this is extraordinary showdown and this display of the glory of God. And I want you to understand, this is what Elijah has been praying for and working for his entire life as a prophet. Get rid of the false teachers. Get rid of the false prophets of those who are leading the people of God astray. In one swoop, all of them are gone. And God, reveal your glory in such a way that all of Israel turns back to you. And in one moment, all Israel cries out, the Lord, He is God. And Ahab and all of his household, all of the royal household, all of the judges and the generals and all of the important people who are there to see Elijah the troubler of Israel fall, they instead see God in a way that they've never seen anything like that before in their lives. And all of the idol worshipers and teachers are killed in one moment. Elijah is victorious. God has kept his word. God has done everything that Elijah wanted him to do. This is a wonderful moment. A victorious moment. A spectacular, spectacular victory. And now look with me at 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. There's something there, I think, that we all recognize. I want to try to, to rephrase it, to, to sort of re, rephrase what Elijah is saying there. I think that what Elijah is saying is, God, I thought we were doing it. I thought we were doing it. I thought we did it. I thought we did it. I thought I did it. I thought you did it. We didn't do it. I'm still being hunted. People still aren't going to worship you. I guess I didn't do it. I guess we didn't do it. I guess you didn't do it. 
what he's saying. It's, it's enough. It's enough. Now, oh Lord, just kill me. I'm no better than any of my fathers. You know, they, they say never to invade Russia in winter. Never invade Russia in winter, right? Napoleon fell in that situation. Hitler fell in that situation. Why? Right? Because it's just, it's just too much. There's too many opponents. And that's what Elijah just stepped off of that high mountain. He just stepped into a, a multi-front crisis of faith. Have you been there? Where you feel like, God, listen, maybe it's just me. I just can't do it. Maybe it's them. They're just too whatever. Maybe it's this, that. I just can't see my way around that big thing. Maybe it's just us, our relationship. I don't know. What am I doing wrong? And in your heart of hearts, you know, maybe it's you. I thought, I thought we were doing this thing together. I thought this was what you wanted. I thought you said you were going to do this for us. Maybe you don't. And how many times, no matter where you're at in your spiritual life, how many times has this happened? Where you feel like, you know what? God, I, I've been going to church like really regularly, or I've been reading my Bible, or I've been trying to witness, I've been praying for these things. I thought I was doing it. I thought we were doing it. Maybe you even experienced some, some success in this. It seems like something changes, something in the situation shifts, and you feel like, we're doing it, we did it. And then the next moment, <laughs> wait, I, I, thought, I thought you wanted this. I thought we were in this together. A lot of times this last, these last three months, part of my gratitude for you and my, my worship of the Lord was the way that this church weathered the last two years of COVID stuff. That's sort of just the, the lump all category, right, for all of the craziness the last couple of years. This church is really... Like, I'll talk to other pastors, and they're like, oh, this, you know, this, and I'm like, my, my congregation's kind of okay. Like, they all seem to be pretty cool with whatever. Maybe that's just because we live, like, you know, a day's drive from civilization or something, but, uh, you know, whatever the reason is. And I felt, I feel a little bit of this. Like, I felt a little bit like, I can't believe we, you know, there's this time in high school when, uh, we were, I was camping with some friends. I've probably told you the story before in Canada, and, and three of our party got separated from us, and two of us who didn't know how to run a boat were trying to find them. And right at dusk, right before we would have lost visibility, and they would have been left with a half a peanut butter sandwich between the three of them and shivering on the, on the shores of this huge lake in Canada, we hear this... We turn around and we find them, and, and as we start approaching in the boat, my, my big burly friend is just sobbing, right? He's just like, we survived. It's a little bit how I felt this summer. Like, I just can't believe, God, that we survived all this. We survived, and it, it's such a grace, and I'm so thankful for it. But after a season like that, right, after Mount Carmel, you can be especially vulnerable your faith can be especially vulnerable. You feel like, man, I got all the answers. We're doing it right. And that feels really good to have a confident, strong faith. 
but there may be more rust underneath than you thought there was. And you find your tailpipe dragging in a strange place. See, Elijah's got to deal with in at the beginning of chapter 19. Was I really, was I really resting in the Lord and His work? Or was, I, was this mine? Was I really listen, am I really listening to Him or is this mine? Am I really trusting Him in His way or is this me and mine? The world is relentless. I felt that this, these last three months. I felt great joy and gratitude over uh, our church's endurance through the, the COVID season. But as I look into the future, it ain't getting better, I don't think. So, we need to remember the word of the Lord here in Mark chapter 4. If you want to turn with me, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Mark 4.14. We're just going to look briefly, read the words of Jesus here. Mark chapter 4, verses 14 to 19 is what we'll read. This is where Jesus is explaining one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower who sows the seed, the, the preacher who delivers the word of God to people. And listen again to the effect of the world on faith. The sower sows the word, verse 14, 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they, but they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is just what happens. This is just what happens. The effect of the threat of persecution, a rise of a sense of troubles, a rise of a sense of, you know what, I need, a, I need that to be okay, desire for other things, the, the uncertainty of riches, the cares, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world rise up and they affect our faith. If we're not attentive to this, if we're not periodically examining underneath the truck, this is what happens. Unquestioned faith can wither is what Jesus is saying. Unquestioned faith can wither. And so the question of faith needs to be regularly asked. I mean, I don't know about you, but at this point in my Christian life, it feels like it doesn't take a lot to, uh, to send me rolling down from Mount Carmel to the bottom of the broom tree. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You're tired. You look all around you, you look within you, you're worried, you're anxious. You know that we have the hope that Anita talked about. You know that we have that hope in God. But boy, I don't know how he's going to beat these odds. It's a struggle. What do we do with that? 
What do we do with that? You know, uh, Israel in Isaiah 30, they were going to rent horses and run down to Egypt and hide from the Assyrians. They were, they were in this moment of their, their faith being tested and their faith was withering. They were saying, God's great, but we need some horses in a hurry. Elijah's in this season of testing too. He's, he's in this season where his faith is withering. He's saying, I know God's great. I know He's good, but I'm done. I, can't, I cannot put up with unmet expectations anymore. Kill me now. He runs and hides under the broom tree. And he's done. The author Mark Sayers, whom some of you are familiar with because we read one of his books not long ago in, a, in our book club, he says that when our faith is in those conditions, when, when we're in a kind of a gray zone, we run to strongholds. We run to things that we think will give us comforts. Make it seem okay. Make it seem like we have some measure of control and things are stable. But it, it's not going to work. They don't work. right? Only the Lord can give us that salvation. Only the Lord can give us that strength that we need to endure these seasons. And so now the question for Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and the question for us are the same question. Are we willing to trust the Lord again? Are we willing to trust the Lord again? And let me encourage you just with this as we close. Because He has more for us. He has more for us. He has good for us. He has glory to take us to. He has more for us. One of my favorite authors, second to C.S. Lewis, if you, if you want to know. His name is Frederick Buechner. He's a, he, he just passed away a couple weeks ago. A very old man. And I, I just read one of his books on sabbatical, and I just started another book of his. Uh, so the news kind of hit me hard. But I read something that he wrote that uh, really dovetailed with this, this thing that the Lord's been helping me to consider over the last three months. And it's this quote of his uh, from one of his novels where he says this. I'm going to read the whole quote and there's the highlights on the screen for you. He says, if you tell me that Christian commitment is a kind of thing that has happened to you once, once and for all, like some kind of spiritual plastic surgery, I say you're either pulling the wool over your own eyes or you're trying to pull it over mine. Every morning you should wake up and ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? No, better still, don't ask it till after you've read the New York Times till after you've studied that daily record of the world's brokenness and corruption, then ask yourself if you can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ again for that particular day. That's the question of faith. And what Buechner is saying there in his uh, novel version is the same thing that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews has got this sort of long sermon that he's telling the people, he's, he's saying that, that there is a rest for us we can rest in the work of God. And we enter that rest by faith. And he says, so then that rest remains for the people of God to enter by faith. And then he kind of gets cute as we preachers sometimes do. And he goes, and God has appointed a certain day on which he wants you to enter that rest. And he has called that day today. This particular day. Are you willing to follow the Lord? Are you willing to trust him again today? Faith is the central question of our lives. It is the central question of every day. And so the question of faith needs to be regularly asked. Am I willing to trust the Lord again? After yesterday? 
today, even though tomorrow's probably going to come, for that? The the older I am, the more for that I have to ask the question of faith to. Am I going to trust the Lord for that? Am I going to trust the Lord for that? So as we as we transition now to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, for taking communion together, I'd like to recommend a few prayers from Scripture to guide us as we take a few moments of, of quiet contemplation. And I want you to wrestle with the question of, are you willing to follow the Lord today? Again, today. With whatever the nonsense in your life is. Are you willing to trust the Lord with that? Here are some phrases and some verses from Scripture that I want you to use as you, if you need some words to help you talk to the Lord. From the Psalm, Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Like, God, I don't have it. I do not have it. That willing spirit, I need it to come from you. The man who Jesus told to have a little faith, have a little faith, brother. And the guy says, Lord, I believe. But not unmixed with unbelief. Maybe that's you. Lord, I'm willing, but I need a little help. I need your help. Jesus himself knows our struggle. Remember this? Nevertheless, not what I will but you will. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Lord, here's my will, and I think it's a really good thing, but I'm willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. Or maybe you're just willing to say, Lord, I am willing. I'm willing to return to you, rest in you, trust in you. So let's just take a a minute or two, leave these on the screen if you want to borrow them for your prayers. Um, But I hope that you will come to some measure of an answer to the question in your heart, at least for today, of whether you are willing to trust the Lord again. All right, let's just take a minute. Take one minute. One literal minute. Bow your heads and close your eyes and talk to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would restore to this congregation the joy of your salvation and that you would uphold us with this willing spirit. Lord, we're here this morning because we believe, and yet we also are here confessing that there is some measure of reluctance, a hesitancy in our spirits when we think about certain areas of our life and following you in them. And so, Lord, would you give us the spirit of Jesus that even though it's struggling with these questions, it ends up saying, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done, Lord. And may we not be like the the people of Judah in Isaiah 30 who say we're not willing, but that we would be those who say, Lord, we we are willing to return to you, to rest in what you have done and what you have promised to be quiet, to listen, and to trust. Holy Spirit, you know what we need to hear. 
what, we, what work we need to do in response to these contemplations, these passages of Scripture. And Lord, you know what we need you to do. And so I ask that you would do it now. In Jesus' name, amen.